Father, our hope is in you. Our eyes are on you. We want our ears to be open and our hearts to be softened. And we need your spirit to be at work in us so that we can see your son one more time. So we pray, Lord, send your spirit. Open our ears and our eyes. Soften our hearts. We listen to your word. And then give us courage, Lord, to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever been a part of what has sometimes in the past been called inductive Bible study, you know that there are steps to the way that we read the word. And that, that whole process is put together primarily because what we don't want to do is read the Bible and then decide that we can just determine exactly what to do without having studied first what the passage is actually saying. There are certain obvious cases in which we realize that's the case, right? When you read about something horrible that somebody's done in the Bible, right, and, and we then take that as an example, we would all know that's, that's not the best way to read the passage, right? And so we, we obviously do what's an inductive Bible study called inter- or observation. We open up the text, we try to read some things about the words, look at how they're formed in sentences, where is the context, what was going on in that day. It's all part of how we observe what's happening in the pages of Scripture. We then interpret it. We then try to ask the question of what does that mean? Because it was written a long time ago to people long dead in a language we don't understand. And so it's been translated over to our language, but it requires some sense of interpretation, especially if it's talking about things outside of our cultural context. But then you know, where does that lead us? Where does that take us? The observation and the interpretation should lead to application. Very good. What do we do? we got to get around to the question of what do we do. But here's a tricky thing. Last week, this week, next week, we're basically with Mark walking along with Jesus in his suffering. We're walking along the path to the cross. And we're going to back up, right, next week. We're going to start on Sunday and go back to Palm Sunday. And chronologically through the week, we'll kind of catch up to where we are here in the book of Mark. But we're, we're ahead of ourselves a little bit because we've been ahead of the triumphal entry and those sorts of things. But we are in a period right now where it's tricky. The application part of how to study this is difficult. And so though it seems perhaps like we want to rally ourselves to action in some ways, I do think that particularly because we do this every year, because these are familiar texts, and because we've heard, we've, the Garden of Gethsemane has almost become like a metaphor for people being in a dark time. We're familiar enough with this passage that I think what we want to do is just to listen and observe and be affected. So there's, spoiler, that's the take-home. When Ashley and I were talking about the bulletin and she was putting some things together, she said, I printed up the bulletins, but you didn't have an Old Testament passage this week. And I said, I know, I know. I actually wanted us to be able to hear something first. And it's also one of the verses we're going to hear at the end. Because it reminds us is the story, I don't know if you guys remember, Mike told it, uh, when he was thinking about the incarnation over Christmas. told the story of a man who used to work with the queen, was out walking with the queen, 
and met someone who came up and talked to the two of them. You remember that story? They recognized him as being kind of significant because he was wearing some sort of you know, jacket or coat or something along those lines. But they didn't recognize her at all. In the end of the day, they wound up talking to him about what it was like to work for the queen. And at the end of the day, asked the queen to take a picture of this guy who knew the, the queen and them. And the queen could have been there in the picture, but they didn't know who they were talking to. The reason he told that the incarnation is more prominently important in a moment like this. At the beginning of the book of Mark, well, more Matthew and Luke, we get this sense that it was amazing for Jesus to be who he was and yet to come in the form that he did. And yet, when Philippians and other texts talk about the humiliation and the servant nature of Jesus, it doesn't just end with the incarnation. It comes to this moment of redemption and the Christ dying and suffering as our substitute. And so for us, what do we do? Let's just not miss royalty in this moment and miss the contrast between how royalty is being treated. So first thing we're going to do is go back and listen again, and we're going to listen first to Jesus, sorrowful in soul. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Do you remember the way that Genesis begins? God creating? What happens at the end of every day? The evening, there was morning, the first day. But right before that, God saw what he had done. It was good. Every day, God's at work. He sees what he had set forth to do. He sees how he's done it. It's good. There's not just a sort of, you know, middle schoolers going to the museum kind of thing. Is that painting good? I guess it's good. I'm just not all that impressed with it. That's not the way God's surveying what he's done. He's, he's good, and there's a sense of his satisfaction. From that moment on, has there ever been a day when God has done what he was going to do, set out to accomplish what he was setting out to accomplish? And when he would roll back the pages at the end of that and say, Ugh, this doesn't make me happy. None of it ever because of his activity, is it? There are moments that God's grieved, that we know that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And here we have the Son of God coming through his hardest labor, having just been with his disciples in the upper room. He's just arrived here and says, I am, Mark uses the words distressed and troubled. Jesus' words are sorrowful even to death. David in Psalm 42 writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Then he goes on and talks about things and memories that he has in the past and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil 
within me? For David to have to answer that question, he can point outside of him and can say, these other people are treating me badly. That's part of the reason my soul is downcast. And David would have to also square up and say, and I've screwed up. I've dropped the ball. I haven't lived up to what I ought to have. Both of those, they, they, they congeal together in my soul and it just brings a sorrow. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Those are David's words. But never were those kinds of words uttered in such a way that Jesus is using that same language here in the garden. His soul is sorrowful, very sorrowful, very sorrowful, even to death. Why in particular is he so sorrowful? Because he says then, remain here and watch, goes on a little on his own, Little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The language of a cup in Scripture only explains a little bit more why Jesus is sorrowful, so deeply sorrowful, so deeply sorrowful under the point that he wants to die or feels death on his heels. There are times that when the word cup is used in Scripture, it, it, it seems a little bit more like, hey, this is my lot in life. This is the way things are going. Psalm 16, 23, 116. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What's next? The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, right? All of these metaphors being used, sheep don't drink from cups, and David's not only drinking from a cup. This is saying basically what the other psalm's saying, that the way you've handled me, the way you've treated me, this cup that I'm about to drink, this is outstanding. It's got good things and it's overflowing with them. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, what do I need God to do? I need you to keep filling this up. God, you have been good. You have been overflowingly good. And I lift up, when I need to be saved, I lift up a cup to you and I need you to pour into it so that I will continue to be saved. That's, a, that's the language of Scripture. It's the way the word cup just gets to be used. But it's not the only way the cup gets filled. The prophets often use the language of cup, but used it so very differently. Not in these personal ways of satisfaction, but of impending sense of anger and wrath from God. Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, Revelation 14. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Same kind of language right there in Isaiah. O Jerusalem, you've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl. If anyone worships the beast in its image, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Lay the question at Jesus' feet here in the garden. Why is he sorrowful, very sorrowful? Why is the Son 
of God, the obedient one, feeling death right before him. It's because there's a cup before him and it's not filled up the way the psalmist is. The cup facing Jesus is one he knew was coming. Remember the moment we hit a few chapters ago in Mark chapter 10? James and John have come to Jesus and said, we have a request. We'd like to sit at your right and your left when you're in glory. And he says, well, let me explain a little bit of how this is going to work. Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Listen again to Jesus' words in his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Think about what Jesus has endured to this point. And think about the fact that we have never heard this prayer from Jesus before. He has been unpopular and rejected basically for his entire ministry. Yes, swells and little peaks of it until Jesus, you know, took the veneer off and said, you don't really understand what I'm offering to you here, what I'm calling you to, and what I'm coming to do. If I could explain that a little bit more, people usually tended to recoil a little bit more from it. One point in Jesus' ministry, he's got so many coming around him because he gave them everything they wanted. And by the time they come to him again, he's like, you just want me to do another trick. You just want me to perform another need. You need me so deeply that the very fact that you eat and drink are only metaphors. What you think are your most basic needs, I've created everything so that they are nothing but metaphors for how deeply you need me. So that my body, my coming to you in this form, it has to be the most true form of bread you've ever had in your entire life. That my coming and having blood inside of me that is going to be poured out for many, that needs to be the thing that you depend on, the way that you depend on drink. So that my body is real food and my, my blood is real drink. And everybody, especially the strict Jews, <laughs> actually anyone, it's because this guy's nuts. He can do impressive stuff. And I kind of like the way he makes me feel. But when he really talks about what it means to follow him, I don't want any part of this. And they all go to the point that Jesus is left with the 12. He says, you guys leaving? And the best that he gets is, well, I, <laughs> if there were anywhere else to go, we would. Which is really not the best commendation you ever get, right? Not at that point or at any other point. Not when accused, not when coming out of the temple, not everything we've just heard, not the ways that Jesus has been railed against. None of it has been something that's led Jesus to the point of saying, my soul is so very deathly sorrowful. But something's coming. A cup is coming. Will glory be there? Yes, but a cup first. Can you drink it? 
ignorantly, they say, oh, yes, we can. We'll walk with you. This is going to work out. Everybody's just declared their allegiance to Jesus. And he's made prediction after prediction. But even those predictions didn't lead him to this deep, deathly sorrow. Have you ever accused a kid of doing something they didn't do? Even the most guilty kid. The most guilty kid who got away with stuff. And you missed like 10 of them, but you falsely accused them of one of them. What rises up within them? And frankly, what rises up within you when you hear of somebody falsely accused? There's a certain sense of indignance, right? There's a certain sense that we just, we want justice. We don't like the fact that the wrongfully accused don't get ultimate justice, but they actually have to pay for something somebody else has done. You Reader's Digest used to have this whole section called, that's outrageous. And basically the whole article was just that. It was nothing but outrageous moments when people who were innocent were treated as though they were being guilty. When you hate if you got fired because your coworker cheated? Wouldn't you hate if you got an F on a test because they found you to be complicit in something that was going on? Wouldn't you hate if the grades got mixed up, if your pay rates were, were altered? Wouldn't you hate if you did what was right and you got treated as though you were doing what was wrong? That moment, if it's ever happened to you, it gnaws at you, doesn't it? The injustices of life, they keep you up. They bother you. And that's nothing but the residue inside the cup that is filled up right now. The putrid, horrid, septic, toxic nature of what is about to fill up this cup is what was being talked about. The wine of the cup, or the cup of the wine of wrath, the cup of wrath, the cup of his anger. The fact that the way God feels about sin was being stored up, had been stored up, was a mountain of being stored up behind Jesus. And he was from that moment of prayer about to turn and face it and he was about to drink it full to the, to use the language of Isaiah, to the dregs of this bowl, that had the mighty Son of God terrified, deathly, sorrowfully terrified, to the point that he then said the other thing he's never said before. Hey, God, um, maybe not. I know it's been the plan. I predicted the plan. I told them about the plan. And now that I'm right before the plan, what if, what if there was something else? What if the, has Jesus ever spoken this way before? Never has he considered a plan B. Never has he questioned the Father's will. Never has he said, I think you got it wrong. What about another option? And I can't tell you how long, how long it takes in between remove this cup from me, period, 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 thousand. Mark doesn't mention, but is this, 
Is this where he's sweating and stressed and his blood pressure is rising so profusely that blood is starting to burst inside at his skin so that he's not just sweating, he's sweating drops of, he's already bleeding just thinking about it. Never before has Jesus ever uttered these two statements. I'm just so, so sad. We got to do something else. And whenever that pause is over, however many times this cycles around, this is Jesus. Sorrowful soul. He does not deserve this moment. He has earned everything but this moment. He has observed every moment that filled up this cup. And he's about to drink from the raw sewage of our sin. And so this is Jesus, sorrowful in soul. I have this listed as David in Psalm 42. It's not. It's another commentator who wrote... The disciples will also drink a cup of suffering. But Jesus' cup of suffering is different from theirs because Jesus' suffering is under God's anger. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God against sins of all types, heinous crimes, adultery, careless words, dishonoring thoughts, lies, all of it, will be punished by God. Jesus says, maybe not. This is the world champion weightlifter approaching a bar and saying, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't know that I can do this. If that guy approaches this and says that before approaching or before attempting to lift it, you've got to know how heavy this is. But it's not over in verse 37. It's not just that Jesus is sorrowful. It's that he's about to be alone in his sorrow because he is Jesus also neglected by friends, secondly. to verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Simon, are you, are you asleep right now? Are you, are you, do you one hour, just one hour? Hour. All right, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing. The flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Verse 40. 
for their eyes were very heavy. And they didn't know what to answer him. So he goes away a third time. Feeling the same sorrow, feeling the same words, asking the same prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He grabs the bar. And he begins to strain to lift it up. Verse 41, and he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Isn't it enough that the obedient, triumphant son of God would have to be sorrowful? This sadly, terrifyingly sorrowful. He didn't ask for all 12. He just asked for three. He just wanted the three with him. And even at this point, he was neglected by his friends. What did he ask them to do? It wasn't a lot. Bear this with me. Be my spotters. Help me get this load up. I mean, even Moses needed somebody to lift his hands. Could you guys just be there with me to lift my hands in prayer? Could you, could you do that? No, he didn't ask for any of that. It was, it was nothing. It was, this is going to be tough. I'm going to need you to take out a couple guards because, you know, I can't handle them all myself. I'm going to need my boys, okay? That's not what he's asking for. What he's asked for? He said, watch. I just, just the three of you, just come, just watch. But their eyes are very heavy. Just pray. Just watch and pray. But their eyes are very heavy. Because their flesh was weak. You've done this. We're the three. I just want you to be alert. And I just want you to pray. I want you to fix stuff. I just want you to watch and pray. And our weak flesh is so unwilling to watch and pray because we are weak. So let's look at Jesus, neglected by friends. What does he do to them? He bearing this load, abandoned by them, because their poor widow eyewoods are so sweepy. They're so weak right now. What does he come and do to them? said, look, I just don't want you to enter into temptation. The weakness of the human soul is such a fertile ground for tempting moments. 
It is our physical weakness that makes us vulnerable. It is our emotional weakness that makes us vulnerable. It's the cycle of things that we can share inside our own heads, our mental thoughts. These things make us vulnerable. There's so much that we are weak over, and he just says nothing about himself to them. He doesn't beat them up. He doesn't rake them over the coals. He doesn't tell them how much they've let him down or how much he was counting on. He doesn't twist the knife. He doesn't make them feel guilty. He just says, I just don't want you to enter into temptation. But we're not going to do this anymore. Three times is enough. It's enough. The hour has come. This is our Jesus who was sorrowful in a way he should never be, who was neglected in a way he should never be. And James Edwards says of this moment, three times Jesus warns them to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But the crisis before Jesus is canceled and consumed by their lethargy. Three times Jesus finds them asleep, surely a prelude to Peter's three forthcoming denials the admonition to watch and pray for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak is a necessary reminder that trusting and obeying God are not default responses of disciples of Jesus, but ongoing struggles against temptation and weakness. The church later identified the problem as sloth, or this is a word I, I can't even quite pronounce, acidity, which is a state of steer, spiritual torpor or indifference that could only be rectified by attentiveness and prayer. Or to use Jesus' words, that we would watch and pray. It's possible we overstate our weakness, but a moment like this doesn't make that likely, does it? The scene, if we're like the three, does not make it likely that we overstate our weakness. We probably understated. Why? Not because we talk down about ourselves, not because we have a low self-esteem. Those aren't the indications that we don't know our weakness. If we knew our weakness, we would do two things. We would watch and we would pray. We would pray for, prayerfully watch and we would watchfully pray. But what we're going to do right now is to realize who it is in the garden for us. It is Jesus, sorrowful in soul, neglected by friends. And lastly, it is Jesus betrayed unto cowards. Verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. What a contrast of those two. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The self-righteous religious nerds of Jerusalem have come against Jesus with borrowed swords and borrowed clubs. They're the little... They're the little bully or the little weak guy behind the big guy. Go get him. Go get that guy. He's a threat. We need to take him down. So go take your swords and your clubs. Go get him. 
And Jesus just (laughs) calls it out. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him and lead him away under guard. And when he had When he came, he went up to him and said, Rabbi, teacher, he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Way to go. Jesus said to them, you pansies, you absolute cowards. Why? It's not because there were strong people and they were hiding behind them. It's because this is the middle of the night. This is where they had to find him. Why were they cowards? Jesus calls it out. Have you come against a against have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. There's so much we also know from other gospels about this moment, and it's amazing, once again, how much Mark just skates past. Healing the ear? Nah. Who did this? Nah. None of that. that he's being handed over to cowards. Is this not the greatest insult of the night so far? Who else from Adam and Eve on could have looked into the cup of the full weight of the raw sewage of the sin of humanity and said, not my will, but yours? Is this an easy moment? No, Mark has proven it is not. It is Jesus sorrowful to death. It is Jesus not doing this because he had help from his boys. No, they're all just sleeping. And at that moment, the strongest human of all time is being handed over to the most cowardly of folks who were scared of what other people thought. Day after day, let's go get Jesus. Oh, we could, but other people might think badly of us. That's what's motivating and driving them, what everybody else thinks. And that's who Jesus is being sent over to. How is this right? It's not right. None of this is right. Next week will not be right. Good Friday will not be right most of Jesus' ministry has not been right. The incarnation wasn't right. But why then? For this phrase, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Because from the first moment on, sinful people like putting fig leaves over top of their nakedness. And God knew It requires blood. And so he clothes after slaying. And that's what he's doing right now. He's preparing his lamb for slaughter.
so that the scriptures could be fulfilled and that we could be brought back to God. This is the moment where I want to pull away. This is the moment I want to know what do I need to do. Why? Because we know this is wrong. And somehow we want to do something to make it right. So you said watch and pray, right? Yeah, but that's not the application point I'm telling you to do. Why? Because I don't want you thinking you can watch and pray and make yourself worthy of what is happening. I don't want us to think that if we pray a lot more this next week, somehow we can make it up to God. Can you imagine that? Us coming before God with the open ledger, all of your sin poured into one cup. You would have been terrified by this. It would have killed you the very smell of it. And he drank it all down. Every time you lied, every time you gossiped, every time you put yourself up in front of somebody else, every outburst of anger, and that one thing you are desperately hoping nobody else knows about, that is in the cup. He drank that for you. And we're going to come back to God and say, well, I'm going to do my devotions this week so that balances everything out, right? Goodness, no. The only thing we do because of what he did with his cup is exactly what was prophesied in the psalm in the beginning. What will I render to the Lord for all his benefits? I'll just hold up my cup to him and say, Lord, why then you fill it. You fill up this cup of salvation because you're the only one who can pour good things into it. But the only good way I want any good coming into that cup is if everything garbagey has ever been emptied if it's been emptied of everything I've ever done. So let's not say the thing to do this week is to try and figure out how to do our devotions more so God feels like, well, that was worth it. I mean, I mean, he's reading his Bible and he's praying. That's good. Watch and pray. Yes. But let's just bring our sense of amazement that this is what Jesus has done. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's just we have one more verse. His last scene. They all left him and fled. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That is Jesus, raw, unadulterated Jesus, not clothed in flesh, not hidden in a manger, not naked on a cross, not bleeding for us. This is the Son of God. Listen again. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, all things created by him, heavenly things created by him, earthly things created by him, visible things created by him, invisible things created by him, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of these things were created through him, all of these things were created for him, and they all fled! 
They left him there, the image of the invisible God, there in the garden, alone. Why? Because he said it. You will all fall away. Oh, Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not deny you. Is that your confidence today? If it is, oh, just get out of church. Go live your life in your strength. If you walk out of this room thinking, I will be the one who will never deny Jesus because he's so good that I'm on his team, you're missing the point. The word is all. And there is no exception. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is every single one of us. Were you there in this moment? You'd have run. If I were there in that moment, I'd have run. They all left him and fled. Because Jesus said you will all fall away and he is the image of the glory of God. But one day, that creator and redeemer We'll hear these words from our lips. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. One day we won't run. One day we will be gathered around the throne again, and our words will say, you upheld everything. You made everything. You were the great creator. But that won't be all we will be praising him for. We will also praise him for these, with these words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is what we will be praising him for, is the moment that is right around the corner. The moment represented by this cup. The moment when he saw you and said, I will clean out your cup for you. I will drink everything from it for you, that it may be clean and that I can pour good out for you once again. Why did you have any good this week. It's because he rinsed out your cup before he filled it again. Why is it so wrong to ask how can bad things happen to good people? Because it's a stupid question. If we understand this moment, we stop asking that question. We stop asking God, why me about the bad? And we say, God, why me about the good? Why? Because we're just paying attention to Jesus. We're not earning his favor. We're just amazed again by Jesus. Because this verse continues. You have purchased them. You, sorry, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The people who fled and ran away. And what does he do with them? What does he do with us? And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's where you're going, church. You fleeing disciples, this is your destiny because of me. Not shame, not regret, not guilt, because it's all removed 
And this is in its place. The glorious God we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you by your spirit that you helped us see Jesus once again. Be amazed at what he endured and will endure and continues to endure for us. May we not flee. May we stay and watch him and pray that you'd keep us from temptation. We are in such desperate need of your grace and your care. And we're so amazed that you showed us Jesus once again, despite everything of this last week. But God, I pray, make us amazed at the good in our cup today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's stand and sing as we know the end of this story.